Good morning. You can take your Bibles and go to Psalm 100. We'll be looking at a couple different passages. You can go to Psalm 100 and then put your finger in Isaiah chapter 6. We'll be in both of those passages this morning. I'll be referring to several other passages as well. This morning we're continuing our series that we call each year the Habits of Grace. Uh, We return to this series at the beginning of the year to remind ourselves as a church family of our fundamental responsibilities to God and the means or our tools by which we grow. They're ordinary means. They're ordinary tools that God reveals in his word. There are primarily three. It's the word, it's prayer, and it's true biblical fellowship. And we focus on each of those each year as we rehearse how how do we do this and grow in our understanding of the word and how do we read it better? How do we understand prayer? How do we think of discipleship as we heard last week? This morning we're going to look at the idea or the topic of corporate worship. Um, We have looked at this in years past and we'll do that again this morning. What is the single most important meeting that you have on your calendar each week. Think about maybe the options that come to your mind. The single most important meeting you have. What meeting in your week is most valuable to your spiritual growth? Maybe in your mind you came to a staff meeting, something that happens at work each week. Maybe it's a a meeting with a friend that's really encouraging to you. But what meeting in your week is most valuable to your spiritual growth? What meeting is most significant and is able, it has the potential to reorient your entire life back to God's purposes for you? What meeting each week provides us with just a glimpse of what we will spend the rest of eternity doing with God's people? It's the corporate worship service. It's this service. And here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Do we think of corporate worship each week in this way? I don't. I struggle to value it the way that God intends. Mainly because I've grown up coming to church every Sunday. It's what we do. I know the routine. And sometimes familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? Or we minimize what exactly we're doing here together. Do you value this specific gathering the way that God tells us that you should? David Mathis writes in his book, Habits of Grace, corporate worship is the single most important means of grace and our greatest weapon in the fight for joy. Because like no other means, corporate worship combines all three principles of God's ongoing grace or help to us. His word, prayer, and fellowship. Now, as I studied about corporate worship this week, my heart was overwhelmed. I've been working this morning to reduce how much I have to say. There is so much that we could talk about when we think about worship. The encouragement I would give to you is that as I studied, I came across and thinking through the history of how other believers have worshipped. The Puritans around Jonathan Edwards' time, their worship services lasted about three hours. The sermons were 90 minutes and the pastoral prayers were 20 to 30 minutes long. 
So I promise not to speak 90 minutes. So that's a little bit of an encouragement. But there is much for us to consider. And I hope you are encouraged and strengthened as you think about what we're doing in this meeting as we gather as God's people. So the first question I want to ask as way of reminder, who is to be the focus of our worship? Who's to be the focus? When we think of corporate worship, we can begin with two questions. And how you answer them will lead to two very different outcomes. Who, the first question is, who is the primary audience? And secondly, what shapes our choices in designing a worship service? Now, if we begin by choosing what we believe will please the most people, will raise the biggest crowd, will get the most attention, be the most what we think humanly is helpful for people, then we will regularly be preoccupied with how to appease people. And let me tell you, from a leadership perspective, that makes you almost schizophrenic. Because you're always just hearing somebody say, well, I like this better and I like this better. How can you please everyone? That's impossible. But if we are first and foremost concerned about honoring our God, then we will let his own self-revelation in his word dictate what we will do in our worship. And here's the great thing. The beauty of corporate worship as described in scripture gives us the confidence that as we exalt God, God's people will be edified and built up. Because we believe that scripture tells us what we need most is to see our God high and lifted up. That's what we need. And God knows what I need way better than I do. Now, the most concise definition I know of worship is found in Psalm 29, verse 2. And it says this, notice the command. Give unto the Lord the glory that is due, is owed to his name. Again, a command, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. This verse tells us that we must give God the proper weight and honor that he is due to the best of our ability. How can we as human beings ever fully appreciate God and all his glory? We must respond to his self-revelation. We must follow the instructions that he gives us. There are at least two considerations here in we, as we think of giving God the glory due to his name. First, we cannot worship God in our image Our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. God doesn't look on the outside but the heart. We cannot give God worship however we please or even in the manner that makes us feel the best. Such thinking leads to viewing God as just a buddy or a chum or maybe even a divine butler whose job is to make us rich or happy or religiously excited. We come to believe that Christian worship worship fails unless it is fun or religiously, emotionally stimulating. But the reality is that God gets to set the terms and conditions of our worship. We're to worship him alone as he prescribes. 
Now, giving God the glory due to his name, second, also includes our response. When we see what God is like, it will lead us to respond. Worship is a conversation in which we respond to God's gracious self-disclosure. I want you to be paying attention as we work through the sermon to see this conversation on display. It's revelation and then response, and revelation and then response. Now, why do you think God commands his people to praise him? If we look at the Old Testament, if we look at the New, we see commands to worship him, to give God the honor due to his name. It's a command. Why does he have to command us? Why does he do this? Is it because he can't tell what's happening in our hearts and minds unless we say it out loud? Does he need our praise? Is he insecure in some way? Well, certainly not. We know that's not true. God has rejoiced in his own glory among the Godhead perfectly from eternity past. He does not need our praise. He tells us he can make the rocks cry out for his glory. He does not need our worship as if he needs anything. Instead, the reason he tells us we must praise and worship him is for our own joy. For our own good. God wants to give us what we need most. What is most pleasing and encouraging and best for us. And that's himself. That we might fully enjoy him. It's a glimpse of what's to come in eternity. When that veil of sin is removed. And we see him. And we'll be like him. It's also that we might call others to enjoy him. First Corinthians tells us that we're to be so focused on worshiping God when an unbeliever comes in amongst us, they're like, what are these people doing? This is not normal. They're not focused on themselves at all. This is one of the primary ways that we can obey the two greatest commands. Love God and love others. D.A. Carson very helpfully clarifies for us that there's a profound sense in which excellent worship cannot be attained merely by pursuing excellent worship. That's not how we get there. You cannot find excellent worship, he writes, until you stop trying to find it and pursue God himself. That means when we pray, when we read the scriptures, when we sing, we're not to be thinking about, do I like this tune? Is it fast or slow enough? Is it my favorite song? But where is God? What truth about him is being focused on or highlighted? That's the focus. If we follow his directions, our worship will be engaging. It will provoke a great response of passion, of emotion, of joy, of sorrow over our sinfulness. We see this all over the Psalms. It it evokes this passionate response that will lead you to desire more of his word, more of his grace, more of him. Listen to the emotion found in these Psalms. Psalm 122.1 says, I was glad, I was delighted when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. So commentator Douglas Moo 
hopefully concludes, worship of God should always involve the emotions. How can we praise a God who's redeemed us without getting emotional about it? But what should move our emotions, he continues, is not the sonorous tones of the organ or the insistent beat of a drum, but the mind's apprehension of truth about God. Revelation and response. Jonathan Edwards similarly wrote, I don't think ministers are to be blamed for raising the affections of their hearers too high. If that which they are affected with be only that which is worthy of affection. And he clarifies, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affection of my hearers as high as I possibly can. Their passion, their emotion, their love for God, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. So two points in thinking through making God the focus of our worship. First, God alone is worthy of worship because he created us. We see this theme repeated all throughout the Bible. We see it highlighted, especially in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, where the author writes, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's saying this is all about him. All of life is all about him. Psalm 95, 6 and 7, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Listen to how Paul describes how mankind will always struggle with proper worship. We should recognize this will be difficult for us. All kinds of things are going to happen on Sunday morning on the way to church. With the kids, with your spouse, with your friends. Somebody's going to cut you off. You're going to be tempted to focus on the wrong things. Romans 1 tells us why. For although they knew God, they knew about him. They had enough revelation about him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to become wise They became fools and exchanged the glory, think of the worship language there, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Here's what Romans 1 tells me. My tendency will be be to make worship about me. That's going to be my tendency, even as a believer. As sinners, we want to make everything about me even when we gather to worship him. We will want and long for what we're most familiar with, what we grew up with, what we're most comfortable with, what we're drawn to, what is helpful for us. And that's not wrong in and of itself. But when it's corporate worship, we think of what's best for us. What's guided my thinking so many times in thinking about worship for our church body is 1 Peter 5. It says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God, the people who are sitting in the seats. Not the people you hope might someday be sitting in those seats. What's best for our whole flock? With different perspectives, different traditions, different means of help when it comes to choosing certain things. We often want to be able to sing our favorite songs Have a sermon that is just the right length for my attention span. And please don't pray too long, right? 
But if this is truly our natural tendency, we'll not be concerned about our brothers and sisters in the body and how they're encouraged in worship. We, by nature, are prone to be selfish and serve ourselves. And this has to be fought. Every time you walk through those doors and prepare your heart for worship, it's to say, it's not about me. Psalm 115.1 makes this very clear. The psalmist writes, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. That's what we ought to proclaim when we walk through these doors. Not unto me, not unto me. Secondly, God alone is worthy of worship because he redeemed us. Revelation 5 verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, the Lamb of God, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom, a new group, a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Do you see what's coming in our future? Jesus will be declared and worshiped as Lord. And this service is meant to be a preview of that. Notice in these passages their corporate nature. Psalm 95 says, come let us sing to the Lord. Psalm 66, 1 through 3, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. These commands in these psalms are plural. Even the word hallelujah is most often seen as a plural command. And its most simple meaning is let us worship Jehovah together. Psalm 29 two, oh magnify the Lord with me. David Mathis writes and concludes, we were, to made, we were made to worship Jesus together among the multitude with this great horde Swallowed up in the magnificent mass of the redeemed. God didn't fashion us to enjoy him finally as solitary individuals. But as happy members of a countlessly large family. A local church worship service then is a preview of what's to come. There's an old Swedish proverb that says a shared joy is a double joy. In corporate worship the graces and benefits of God we uniquely enjoy grow deeper and richer as we delight in Christ together. Now, how do we keep him at the center of our worship? We understand the challenge, we understand the responsibility, but how do we keep him there and focus there? Well, what I want to focus on the rest of the time, and we'll move fairly quickly, is the elements, the service order that we provide to you each week. We've spent many hours talking about this, designing this, praying through this, studying this, looking at what other churches through history that have loved the gospel and our God have done. And these are not inspired, but they help us worship well and carefully and following biblical patterns. And I want to show you that as way of encouragement this morning. So first, adoration. And in our adoration, we start with a call to worship. 
So I asked you to turn to Psalm 100. We'll look at that text now. We'll look at verses 1 through 5. Psalm 100 is an illustration of a call to worship. Verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Notice the call to worship is a command. God is speaking. And he's saying, make a joyful noise. Think if we just followed that one verse as a command when we gather to worship. A joyful noise. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence. You realize how precious that phrase is? Come into his presence with singing. Know, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. There's creation and redemption. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name because the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The call to worship exhorts God's people to turn from all the distractions of our week to focus our hearts and minds and actions on him. In this psalm, we see God calling us to worship him. And here's the point. The host of this service is not me. It's not the worship leader. It's our God. The host is divine. It's his idea. We do not invite him to come and join us in this service. He calls and invites and urges and compels us to come into his very presence. God calls us from all other preoccupations of the week to join the people he's redeemed in recognition, praise, and service of his incredible glory. I was watching a video clip the other day of a current sports hero interacting with young fans and it was surprisingly moving to see this famous person interact with those who are handicapped or young children when he didn't have to. He didn't have to give of his time or of himself in that way. His kindness to people to whom he owed nothing, who could do nothing for him, demonstrated an aspect of God's common grace. An image in mankind. But how much greater and significant and moving is it that the God of heaven wants to meet with us? He wants to meet with me. He welcomes me. He commands me into his presence week after week. Consider his kindness in designing this gathering, in calling us together as a people so that he can continue to speak to us who ignore him, who demean him and belittle him and act as if he's not real or act as if he's not the king, the creator, the redeemer. Consider his kindness in calling us together to encourage us To remind us of his love, that we're his people, and then speak to us instructions so that we might continue in a relationship with him. By using the words of scripture as a call to worship, God's people are immediately urged to respond to their king, their savior, to his self-disclosure. 
God says in this psalm, know that the Lord is God. He made us. It's a specific call to respond to revelation. He's my maker. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Because of God's gracious invitation to worship him, we can be assured that in spite of who we are, how we failed through the week, that our worship pleases him. How can that be? It pleases him by his grace. Somehow, we've been made precious to him. Notice how Psalm 100 tenderly encourages us with this truth. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. His invitation to worship him reveals his grace to us. And it makes us further willing and able to respond. So true worship begins with a right recognition of God's nature and attributes. When we open with praise, it demonstrates that we are making God's honor first. The first item of business. It reflects the proper priorities of believers. Think of how Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, revered, honored be your name. Turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 6. In this text, we see a pattern of certain repeated biblical themes or elements of worship. Now, this is not to say that the primary point of Isaiah 6 is to provide us with a prescribed order of worship. It's a pattern we recognize. And then we follow. We, we incorporate that into our own worship. Now, if you're visiting with us, our normal pattern of preaching is to work through a book of the Bible text after text. But as we work through this series, one of the things we're doing is, again, focusing on this topic. But this passage illustrates how God interacts with his people in a revelation response format. We see this in Israel's interactions, again, with God at Sinai. We see it in what is most likely a corporate worship service when Solomon dedicates the temple in 2 Chronicles 5 through 7. We see the same elements in Romans 12 through 15 and throughout the book of Revelation. Consider now in our text how the angels adore God. Look down at verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Whether people recognize it or not, the whole earth is full of his glory. One pastor writes, adoration, the call to worship, necessarily and simultaneously commends God's worthiness and consoles us in our unworthiness. We can come to him. He delights in our praise. And all this reminds us that God established a relationship with him by means of his grace. And that grace now compels our response to worship. Why was Isaiah given this vision? This is unique. This is staggering when you understand this passage well. Secondly, our worship of service moves to confession. Once we see who God is, our response is confession. Now, this element of our worship may likely be the least appealing to you. Why spend time focused on how bad we are, how poorly we perform spiritually this week? 
Why talk so much about sin and our sinfulness? Isn't there a danger of discouraging people? Well, if our worship is biblical and God-centered and we truly understand the person we've been invited to meet with, then the only, the only proper response is humility and awe. We will immediately recognize our unworthiness to be in his presence. Isaiah says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's saying, I don't belong here. I am not like you. That's confession. The lights of the glory of God not only reveal his holiness, it simultaneously reveals the ungodliness of all that is human. And if you think for a moment you belong in his presence, you don't understand your God at all. If you think you belong there in your own goodness. Recognition of who God truly is leads to an awareness of who we really are. One author writes, if there's been no confession in a worship service, then there has been no real apprehension of God. His praise necessitates our humility. How could we ever truly honor his worth without sensing our unworthiness? And yet we must be clear that we're not confessing in order to get God to do something. In order to show how truly humble we are. If we neglect neglect God's word and confession. It will seem to lead us to believe that God's forgiveness is conditioned on our repentance. And our emotion in contrition. Rather than making the certainty of his mercy the focus of our confession. I want you to think through that carefully. Pastor Brian Chappell makes this important point about confession. We run to his arms with our sin-sick heart because we know his grace is sufficient, boundless, and free. It's there already. We repent because we are already forgiven, not to gain his forgiveness. In our confession, we experience God's love because we confront our sin with the greatness of God's mercy. Again, we see this massive contrast. God is faithful to me I'm not faithful to him. We're forgiven because he was forsaken. Not because of our contrition. Not because our sorrow for sin is adequate. Our hymn of the month is Amazing Grace. This hymn has comforted Christians now for 250 years. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. That's a great word for us, isn't it? A wretch. Like me. These words draw us to confession because they so clearly strive to represent the awful consequences of our sin, a true view of what I'm like, as honestly as they highlight God's grace. In Scripture, grace is highlighted when it's seen in contrast to the ugliness of sin. It makes much of Him and little of me. Think of how Paul does this in Ephesians 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Sons of wrath, but God made us alive. By grace you've been saved. Let no one boast. 
This morning, Dwight prayed an excellent prayer of confession on our behalf as he pointed our thoughts to the many ways that we have individually and collectively forgotten God and sinned against him this past week. And yet our God does not leave us here in this posture. Think if that's all that our worship order did. Adoration, confession. We are wretches. God doesn't leave us there. Number three, assurance of pardon. He speaks again. Another round of revelation. God reveals his nature and character to us. And we worship him because he calls us into his presence. Then we see God for who he truly is and respond with humility and contrition. But then we need a word of comfort and assurance. Look back again now at Isaiah chapter 6. Look again at verse number 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Think of what it's like when mankind gets just a glimpse of the glory of God. Revelation chapter 1, John sees the glory of one like the Son of Man and he falls at his feet as though dead. When Israel meets God at Sinai, they recognize their unworthiness. They send Moses. They can't go to the mountain. They send Moses to receive God's word. Remember when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke 1. He comes and says, greetings, O favor one. The Lord is with you. But she is greatly troubled. Trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And here's God's word of assurance to her. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. It's not because she was sinless. In chapter 2, when the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds, they are afraid in this angelic host, in their presence. And yet God, again, offers a word of grace. Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. One who will save his people from their sins. No element of our worship is more essential that we receive than the good news that in Jesus Christ we have been pardoned from our sin. He receives sinful men. The assurance of pardon announces again the amazing news of God's forgiveness. And even as believers, we need to hear that news again. We have peace with God because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we proclaim together when we sing, he will hold me fast. We need that word of assurance, of strengthening, of confidence. When I fear my faith will fail because that's just what I'm like. It's not about me holding him. It's about him holding me. Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. We can never worship God in his presence apart from his grace. There always 
There will rather never be a day where I can stand before him in my own righteousness. I need to hear him say to me week after week after week, you're welcomed here because of what I've done. And so again, we respond. Now with thanksgiving. Brian Chappell writes again, the heart that knows grace longs to thank God for this mercy. It's not an imposed pattern. It's the reflex response of the heart that grasps the depths of the gospel. We see the pattern reflected in verse 8 of Isaiah's encounter with God. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. How did God get Isaiah to this point? He showed him what he's like. He showed him what Isaiah's like. He encouraged him that he would forgive him and empower him and strengthen him as he sends him. And so Isaiah says, I'll go. I'll go. He expresses his gratitude in renewed devotion. Number five, petition and intercession. Our petition this morning was found in the pastoral prayer and then in the singing of, Oh Great God. That song is a prayer. In that hymn, we asked God to continue to reveal himself to us, to enable us to respond with obedience and devotion. Then we moved into instruction, what's happening now. Having praised God, received his grace, asked for his blessing, as we hear his word, God's people desire to know how to express more love for him, more love for his people, and love for those who do not yet know him. We come to hear God speak, to instruct us, to call us to submit again. So as God's people, we want to hear the instruction of his word and we want his help to obey. In Isaiah 6, this is captured in verses 9 through 12. God provides Isaiah with specific instructions for his service. So the scripture reading, the sermon, the prayers, the songs are all based on the scripture. And they remind us again that the word of God creates life. I can't stir it up within myself to obey and be good and behave and be the kind of Christian I'm supposed to be. God's word alone creates life. We were called to life, First Peter says, through the living and abiding word. We want to recognize that scripture is God's voice incarnate and therefore we affirm this as we sing the word as we pray the word as we read the word as we preach the word in the ordinances as we see the word through his word god is uniquely present with his people to minister to us lastly the charge and benediction in the last section of our service there's a response and a closing prayer And in these things, we are wanting to acknowledge our responsibility and our desire to obey the word. We believe that every time the word of God is opened, every one of God's people has a response to make. Will I worship? Will I submit? Is there a specific area I need to grow in? Do I need to ask another believer for help, accountability? This is our final response And it should be one of humble, dependent submission and obedience. And in the benediction, we hear God say, I will help you this week. Go forward into life, not afraid that you'll fail again, but with the confidence that I am walking with you. My grace is abundant. 
We don't want to be hearers of the word only, but doers. 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That talks about how we interact with one another. Now, you may have never thought through the order of our worship service before, but why might understanding the order of our worship service be important or helpful for you? Again, I want to acknowledge that our service order is not inspired. It doesn't have to look the same each week. Each of these elements, we've given instructions to our service planners. They can be a scripture reading. They can be a prayer. They can be a song. So we rotate through those. They're designed a little different each week. But we want to include these elements because we see these rhythms of revelation and then response all throughout the scripture. But our forms and structure of worship are not nearly as important as the object of our worship. Other churches will do this differently, the specific ways they incorporate these things. That's fine. That's wonderful. There's freedom in that. But the object of our worship must be him. When the object of our worship is the triune God, it will shape the forms and structure of our worship. We will want to hear from him how he is to be worshipped. He'll be the focus and not us. Now, our order of worship is meant, if you understand what we've just worked through, it's meant to be a representation of how the gospel works. God speaks to us. He reveals what we're like, and he offers us grace upon grace upon grace. He tells us how we can be united with him and brought into his presence through the work of Jesus alone. Even the structure of our service is meant to encourage you as God's people that God is for you and loves you and is pursuing you and initiating a relationship with you. And your job is to respond to him to see him. So our desire is to clearly demonstrate to every person in attendance, even in the structure of the order of each element, that our God is the king of the ages who's eager to meet with repenting sinners. So very quickly, three applications. Worship God for his grace in calling us into his presence today. I hope you've been moved, convicted, challenged, encouraged, assured that your God wants to meet with you in spite, in spite of who we are. In spite of the fact he knows us better than anyone else on this planet. He knows every evil thought, every unkind word and action. Things that no one else has ever seen or thought you would be willing to do. And he invites you into his presence. Here's how I've prayed that this sermon might be of help to you. My goal has been to help you see once again just how amazing and gracious God is to us. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. I'm also hoping that you will better understand and value the structure that the planners work through each week as we plan the worship service, that you'll pray for them. This is a vitally important service a significant, momentous gathering each week. The structure is meant to be a reflection and a reminder of how God interacts with us. Author and musician Matt Merker writes in his book, Corporate Worship, in short, the healthier the church becomes, the more God-centered its worship. That's a good test, isn't it? 
we become like what we worship. I've been encouraged, delighted by how our worship continues to develop and mature. I've been thrilled to be a part of that as a member of this church. To see the focus of the prayers and the scripture reading. Even the moment of silence. I taught through this to the college class earlier this fall. That was their suggestion. I asked them, how do we make sure we keep the right focus? Several of them said, maybe if we took a little time at the beginning to focus on why we're here. So may we continue to grow in our desire to know him and worship him more and more faithfully together for our good and for God's glory. Second, worship God wholeheartedly together. Our goal each week is not to walk out of this worship service primarily excited by the forms or the elements of the service. If you're more focused on the specific songs, how smoothly the service ran, or whether or not you thought the prayers were too long, you missed the point, most likely. Our focus is to be on our God, his character, his grace, his desire to meet with us, his people. That's what each of us need most, and that's what we need collectively as a church family. It's what will encourage us all throughout the week. It's what shapes our affection and calls our wills to submit to. As we behold God, we are changed more and more into his likeness. I agree with that phrase. Beholding is becoming if we faithfully faithfully respond to that self-revelation. We become like what we worship. But there's a danger. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew 15. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. It's possible to come here, sit through service, all designed carefully to focus on God, and you miss all of it. If your heart is far from him. God says the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Several years ago, my family and I were coming back from vacation, flying back from Arizona. When we were walking through the Atlanta airport, I thought I recognized somebody that was somewhat famous. And and I did. It was the football coach at the time, of the Arizona Cardinals. It was Bruce Arians. And some of you know who that is, and some of you don't, that's okay. With my family, we actually stopped him. My wife is braver than I, so my wife stopped him and just said, hey, my wife's from Arizona. She said, we root for the Cardinals. Could we take a picture with you? And I have a picture now with my wife and my kids with Bruce Arians. Now, here's the thing. It didn't matter much to my kids. They don't know Bruce Arians. They don't know who he is. If I told them, they're probably hearing this for the first time in a while, that they, they've met him, they've taken a picture with him, they'll be like, mm-hmm, okay, I don't remember that. It's not significant to them because they don't know him. As we grow in our desire to know him, to hear him speak, we'll grow more and more intense and passionate about him. But perhaps for you this morning, worship isn't very meaningful to you because you don't know him well. He's not somebody that excites you. Worship is all about God. And if you find worship boring, 
What does that say? You need to pursue God and know him if you're a believer. If you're an unbeliever, you need to turn your heart to Christ and follow him. Perhaps that's why worship isn't exciting to you or engaging. Lastly, worship God thoughtfully thoughtfully through the week. Finally, I want to encourage you to use this simple structure, not just as we gather on Sundays, but throughout the week. Our corporate worship is vitally important, but so is your personal daily worship. Each of these elements will help you as you spend time in his word. This is something in the last several months I've been trying to do, is think through this pattern of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, asking God for help, supplication, and then reading my Bible and praying that God would help me to obey it. I simply follow our worship order. And it doesn't take me, certainly it doesn't take me as long as our corporate worship services. I might take those first four elements and work through them in five minutes. It might be longer. I might put a a scripture there when I think about adoration. But think about how adoration, starting there in your personal private time, helps orient you to what you're supposed to be doing in that time. And then you'll be led very naturally through confession and thanksgiving and then supplication. Our great God is worthy of our collective praise and worship. He's worthy of our devoted attention and time, our adoration, our confession, our thanksgiving, our obedience. So may we together continue to devote ourselves to giving our God the glory that is due to his name by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for again the truths of your word, for these calls that we are to come into your presence to worship you. Thank you for commanding us to come because if we were honest and recognized our unworthiness, we would never approach you. We should never approach you. And yet in your grace, you want to meet with sinful people We are astounded. And our voices joined with those of the redeemed who will sing forever worthy is the Lamb to receive all glory and honor and praise and blessing forever. God, we confess that all of life is all about you and we don't live or think or behave that way. And we need your help. And it's guaranteed to us in the gospel. Father, thank you Thank you. Our hearts are grateful. Help us grow in our worship. May we become healthier and more faithful as we make more and more of you, both individually in our hearts when we gather for this service and collectively as a body called together for your namesake. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen.